Welcome to the Sawyer Highlands and Converge Community Church Sermon Podcast. Each week we will upload the sermon that was preached during the Sunday morning service at our New Buffalo campus in hopes that it will serve you well during the week. So sit back, relax, and may you be encouraged by the great hope you have in Jesus Christ as you listen to the preaching of God's Word. Thanks, worship team. Good morning, church. It's pretty good. Good morning, youth in the front row. It's good to see you guys a couple times in a week. Um, my name's uh, Joe, uh, the youth pastor here at Converge, and uh, I uh, am excited to officially kick off the Advent season with you guys. It's still November, uh, but it is indeed the first week of Advent, and so um, this, this is a regular rhythm. Every year, some of you guys know this, every, every late November into December, uh, we, we celebrate Advent, beginning uh, and I think this is a, an appropriate church calendar type of rhythm. Uh, it ingrains, I think, uh, importantly, uh, some of those birth narrative truths. Uh, the manger and the virgin birth. Uh, we have Bethlehem and the shepherds, the wise men and their gifts. These are familiar images. The angel chorus and the Christmas hymns. These all serve an incredibly important role in, in amplifying something that we can't afford to, to forget that God Almighty did, in fact, make himself lowly uh, to visit his people and ultimately save them. And so it is appropriate. Every year, we return to those key passages in Scripture. You, you're familiar with some of them. Uh, the, the first couple of chapters in Matthew the first couple of chapters in Luke, uh, the, those prophecies. Isaiah has a couple prophecies, and the other prophets have prophecies about this Messiah, Jesus, as well. But it's not just these texts that point to Jesus. And so the pastor's heart uh, for coming into this Advent season um, is actually that, that we see one, that the Messiah, the, the promised Messiah, is actually one of the driving themes of the entire Bible, not, it's not just something that like the New Testament God came up with late in the game. No, it's, there's one God, Old Testament, New Testament. He's always been good. And this, this promise of Jesus, it, it was there in the beginning. And it, it continues on right through the end. It, they didn't wait for Matthew to come along to put the pieces together. It was, it's always been there. Uh, the promise of Jesus was there from the beginning to the end. Um, and, and so it's our aim to draw that out, to make it clear uh, that, that Jesus was God's plan A from, from Genesis chapter 1. It was God's plan A to reverse the curse. We've been talking about uh, the, the little postcards that are, are really, um, really well made. Uh, but, but Jesus is God's plan A because that one man, Adam, we're going to talk about him today, it, through him, uh, sin was set into motion, and his disobedience made all men sinners. But God's plan A, Jesus, from the beginning, was to send a descendant of Eve, namely Jesus, whose obedience could make the many sinners in this room righteous. So today, at the outset of Advent, I have the great honor of kicking things off, as I've mentioned, with Genesis 1 through 11, just a couple thousand years of human history 
you know, Mike and uh, Rob teased last, the last sermon series, you know, maybe I, I gave them the idea for it, but I didn't have to preach a series. This series was their idea, and they're making me kick off the, the whole course of human history. So this is their way of getting back at me. Um, but, but what an honor it is, uh, because Jesus, even though he's not named in the book of Genesis, he is there. And the people uh, who lived it, who lived Genesis, and the, the earliest readers of Genesis, man, they were looking for Jesus. Uh, and they, they knew he was coming. Uh, one question I found myself asking, though, uh, pretty, pretty often in my preparation this week was, was this. So, so Jesus is promised in the beginning. How does that change me? What is, what is it, what, how, does, how should that transform me to know that Jesus was promised in the very beginning? What's the transformation? This isn't a lecture we're preaching the word of God for transformation. God wants to meet us and challenge us. Um, and so a couple things came, came to my uh, mind as I'm studying. Well, here, here's one of them. Uh, we have a lot in common with Adam and Eve. Um, we ourselves are prone to, to, um, to fear and to pride. We're, we're prone to forgetting who God is. And so, so we hide ourselves. Uh, and, and so I want you guys, because that's true of us, Here's the main idea this morning uh, as, it, as it came out. <laughs> the promise of Christ in the beginning, it reveals the unchanging goodness of God. The, the, the fact that God made a promise, of Je- uh, the, that promise being of Jesus, that actually, it reveals that he's good. And that means we can go to him, right? That's what Adam and Eve didn't do but we can because God is good and we can't afford to forget that. So we'll, we'll unpack that more. That's a, that's a lot. Um, but we're going to tackle 11 chapters, um, but we're, we're primarily going to camp out in Genesis 3. Let me say this. If, if you've got a Bible or there's a Bible in front of you or you've got a Bible on your phone, it would be really helpful to have it out in front of you because we're tackling massive chunks of Scripture. I'm only going to be able to, to hit on a few, but you're going to see these patterns if you have it open in front of you. Um, but we're going to... Focus on chapter 3, and Grace, I think, is going to read for me still, right? I gave her a big chunk of scripture. So Grace can come on up, and as she makes her way on up, let me ask, if you are able, would you stand in honor of God's word um, this morning? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lion cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the person of the Lord God amongst, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You des your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and, the flame, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Let's pray as we stand. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, thinking of the worship team's song, Prepare Him Room. Uh, Fathers, we come to your word. Uh, would, would you soften our hearts? Would you help us to prepare room for you, to speak with us, to, to draw us out? We are like Adam and we are like Eve. Would you draw out our hearts from hiding by the reassurance of your goodness? Would you give us courage, Lord, by your spirit to draw near to you because you're good? Um, be in the words uh, spoken this morning. Would would it not be anything from me that's heard, but only from your spirit? We pray these things for the glory of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so if you are a note taker, um, I've got three sections we'll follow kind of roughly, um, but it, it's helpful maybe to organize your thoughts. Um, we've got 11 chapters <laughs> Um, and, and the first section, we're actually going to look at Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the fall. So I'm kind of sticking with this beginning theme because that's what Advent means. Anyway, the beginning of the fall, uh, which kind of is, it'll stir up in us a familiar feeling. Um, the second section will actually backtrack to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to, to go back to the beginning and the beginner, the creator, for a reminder. And then the third section, we'll just breeze over the, the last eight chapters, chapters 4 through 11, um, and to, to really search for the one who would reverse the curse. And we'll, we'll get to all of those in time. Um, but those are the sections and, and headings for those of you taking notes. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, we'll, we'll jump in to uh, chapter 3. Because Advent tends to be uh, a, a season full of 
hope and joy, it might strike you as odd uh, that we are starting with one of the darkest chapters of the Bible. Um, But as is true in life and and our experience, uh, those of us who have lived long enough, the light tends to shine brightest in the darkness. and, And I think that is absolutely true in this chapter as well. Um, and, and the dark kind of feels familiar to us in, in every sense of the word here in, at the end of November, um, at least I think it is. Uh, for those of us who live closer to the North Pole than our, our friends who snowbird down in Florida, we love them, uh, we miss them, and, and they probably are wise <laughs> because they're, they're, it's warmer there. For those of us up north, Man, the darkness and, and the cold are, are like tangible. I mean, our world literally gets darker every day. It gets colder day by day. And, uh, and, and that can really have an effect on our hearts too. Not just like, you know, we need to wear more layers, but man, I feel weary. I feel tired. It's dark, it's cold, and it's just getting darker. Uh, there's cold season, flu season, now COVID season. November is just like a slog. Late November, it, it, it's dark. Thank, thank the Lord for Thanksgiving. And, um, and uh, you know, so I think, I think Genesis 3 feels like a spiritual late November. It, it feels very, very dark. Many, many people call this chapter the fall of humanity. That's one of the, the popular phrases. I think it's appropriate. Some people would prefer maybe the word rebellion, the rebellion of man, because there is an intention in it. It's not like they accidentally fell into their sin. Uh, they, they chose to, to take and eat. But I like the word fall uh, because I think it captures the direction of their rebellion. Uh, the fall of, of humanity is, is a downward trajectory. And starting the beginning of the fall, Genesis 3, it, it just continues down and down and down. There's this trajectory, this movement and direction. And so we're going we're gonna to stick with that um, for, for today uh, as we discuss the fall. And so this is a familiar scene. We're going to open up the text now or or direct our attention to the text in Genesis 3. The familiar scene unfolds as a serpent slithers up to the very first woman, uh, who we know to be Eve. And what does he do? What does he say? Does he tell her to disobey God? Does he tell her, hey, eat the fruit? Well, I mean, sort of he does that. But he's more cunning than that. He's, he's more clever than that, isn't he? He never actually says, hey, go disobey God. He, he kind of goes for the jugular. He doesn't say, hey, disobey the command. He says, hey, are you sure you can trust the command giver? He, the serpent wants to go after Eve's belief in God. That is what he's after. Listen to his deception. Here's how it begins. Did God actually say... The word actually there is is very revealing. Did did God actually say this? And Eve responds. She corrects the serpent's question. Actually, no. It's just this one tree in the midst of the garden that we're not supposed to touch, which maybe isn't the exact command. And and if we we eat of it, we're going to die. So she corrects the serpent. So far, so good. But then what does the serpent say? Oh, do it anyway. It'll be fun. Doesn't say that. Uh, Does he say, so what? It's worth it, isn't it? And in a way, he sort of gets at all those things, but again, he does it, how? By going after Eve's belief, what she believes about God and his character. So, so here's his response. Uh, I think we have this one projected. When, when Eve corrects him and says, no, we, we just can't eat that one tree or we'll die, he says this, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, you know, actually, as we read on, it's kind of interesting. Uh, much of what the, what the serpent says, it actually happened, right? Their eyes were opened. They did have a knowledge of good and evil. It just wasn't good. <laughs> um, but, but his leading statement is blatantly false. You will not surely die. What's the serpent doing here? He's calling God a liar. He's going after the jugular. He's going after Eve, what she believes to be true about God. God's not telling you the truth. He's holding something good back from you. The knowledge of good and evil, he knows you want it. He knows it's good for you, and he's not going to give it to you. And so, again, we see the serpent's main goal is not just disobedience. It's, it's disbelief. He doesn't want her to trust her God. And, and, and that's, well, let me just pause for a second as we, as we move on. Thinking of application was, was admittedly a little bit of a challenge for me, but, but I do have some questions that are just going to pop up on the screen throughout the, this morning. And these are just worth writing down if, if, if you're into that or, or pondering. But, but even now, I want you to start considering ways in which you might have been deceived or believe something wrongly about God. And I'm not, I'm not just talking doctrinally, but I'm just the day-to-day life. Am I, am I like kind of retreating from God? I really don't want to bring that thing to him? How, how might you, what, and what does that reveal about what you believe about God? So hopefully that'll make more sense, that question, as we, as we move along. But just start considering, wh- how have you maybe believed something wrong about God? Because it, we're Adam and Eve's kin, it, it's in us. But, but we'll go back to Eve for, for a moment. So what happened after the serpent finished his sinister deception? Well, she took the bait. She followed after this beast of the field, the beast of the field that she was told with Adam to rule over, right? That was one of their their commands was to rule over all living things. But now she's following after this living thing, this beast of the field, um, and, and, and she believed what it was telling her. She believed that God was withholding good from her, this, this knowledge of good and evil. And she thought she should have it to become like God, which is also a real tragedy. Because in Genesis 1.26, God tells us that he made man and woman in his own likeness. She was already like God, more than anything else in all of creation. And the serpent made her believe that there was something that God was holding back to make her truly like him. And so after her suspicion took root, her suspicion of God, further fall into sin was inevitable, and, and, and she continued her fall, and she took. She took the fruit. The sin started before that, though, didn't it? With audacity and folly, she sees, wants, and takes, but it grew out of a deeper sin of unbelief. She didn't believe that God was really good anymore. And, and, and so it was the result of distrusting God was who he said he was. And I thought maybe, maybe an illustration would be good for those of us with children or who have been children, so that should be all of us. Um, most of us are content if the children in our life will just not take things from each other. If we can get our kids to the point, I, I have four-year-olds, uh, two four-year-olds and a two-year-old, and so, man, if I could get my kids to stop taking things from each other, toys, food, turns, you know, uh, that would be really great. And, and so most of us are content to stop there, 
but isn't it, it's like, it's a little sad that, you know, consider snack time. You know, I'll, I'll tell you Jermaine and Asher and I'll, one kid will be at fault, but really it's all of the kids. This happens every day. Um, so just imagine Jermaine is sitting there. Um, he, this is one of my four-year-olds and he, he finishes his snack first because he always does and he sees Asher over here and uh, Asher is eating his snack very slowly, which he always does. And when Asher's looking away, he takes the snack and eats it. Okay, so Asher goes crazy. He's upset with good reason. Um, that makes me sad that, that my son took, but what makes me more sad is that my, my son doesn't believe I would give him more if he asked. He doesn't believe that I can provide him with what is good for him. And, and there's like this scarcity mentality. And that's what Eve has, right? She doesn't believe that God is giving her what is really good. Like he said, like, like he showed himself to be in Genesis 1 and 2. We'll get there. So there's this disbelief. Taking is a symptom of something deeper. I want my son to know I'm going to provide for him. Just ask me for another snack. Like, it's okay. And, and we'll have dinner later. Whatever. So um, hopefully that serves in, as an illustration. I, I really think Eve's disbelief in God is the most tragic and, and root issue in Genesis 3. And so a question worth asking yourselves to ponder is this. Do you Trust God to provide for all of your needs. And I know that's like a real vague question, and it'll be as rewarding to you as you're willing to engage with it. Or are you living from a, a place of scarcity? Do you, do you take things because you, you, you think you have to in order to, to, to be set, to be good? So as verse 6 continues on, um, <clears throat> we, we realize that Eve is not the only character at fault. Uh, we meet Adam uh, in the, the end of verse 6. And, and what, do we, what do we learn about Adam? Well, he was with her the whole time. He was with her. And, and, and God told Adam, when he, when he put him in the garden, he said, I want you to, to work the garden and I want you to guard it. I want you to keep it. And he's letting a beast of the field, who he's supposed to be ruling over, he's letting this beast whisper lies. He has failed to guard the garden. He has failed to protect his wife. He just sat there and listened as, as, as someone breathed lies about their creator to his wife. And then he took the bait too because he also ate. He believed God was holding something back. And so instead of saying, honey, don't do that, I'm going with her. I'm, I'm going to eat. And what comes next, as we mentioned earlier, is exactly what the serpent predicted. Their eyes were opened. And immediately, they recognized they were naked. And so, what did they do? They, they covered themselves up. And, and they were going to hide themselves from God. They were going to hide themselves. Which is just a real tragedy. And so God, the next verse, he pursues them in the garden. He's walking in the cool, the mist, the wind of the, the day, walking through the garden looking for them. And, uh, and they hid. They hid among the trees for fear they were afraid of God. They were ashamed. And it seems all of a sudden there is a new impulse, a new driving force in Adam and Eve. It's an impulse for self-preservation, protection. I got to protect myself and put my faith in, in what I can do and what I can see and accomplish. And while that might not sound terribly evil as we've hopefully exposed, it actually reveals that we believe God can't or won't give us good things. We have to protect ourselves because God isn't as good as he says he is. 
It's a distrust of his special affection for them. And we see this self-preservation, this attempt to protect ourselves actually continue as we get to the next section in our, in our text. Um, where, what verse does this start in? Um, verse 12, God confronts Adam. This self-protection, they realized, I can't hide behind the trees of the garden. I'm going to hide behind someone else. I'm going to shift the blame for my sin. And so Adam is confronted. What does he do? He hides behind the woman that he's called to protect. What a tragedy. And, and, uh, and Eve, she does a similar thing. I, I think her response seems a, a little bit more noble than his. Um, but the serpent you gave me, God, she, he deceived me. Or I guess it's not the serpent you gave me. It's the serpent deceived me and I ate. And, and, and so there's this shifting of blame, hiding, protecting myself. And, uh, and a true story like this can kind of stir up a lot of emotions. Uh, for me, it, it tends to be sadness, uh, but it, uh, I think reasonably could be rage, anger. How could they do this? You know, like, weren't they thinking of me? Um, anyway, um, but, but just anger at them. Or, or maybe it's even like disgust. I just can't, I can't believe this happened. But upon reflection, it, it, we realize this isn't an entirely foreign experience to us. We know this impulse to protect ourselves. It, we're not strangers to it. We want to keep ourselves safe from harm. So much so that psychologists have even picked up on this. They call it the fight or flight response. When we feel threatened, we're ready to go or we're ready to go. This is, it's, it's in us. Um, there's an author that Jeff has mentioned, I think at least like once a year for the last few years. His name's Jack Miller. Uh, I'm a pretty big fan of him myself. And Jack Miller calls this um, self-preservation impulse, he calls it an orphan mentality. So here's what he means by that. An orphan has no parents, Truly, like a true orphan has no parents, no guardians, no providers. So what? They have to do everything themselves. If they're going to get tomorrow's bread, they're going to have to do it themselves. If they're going to have shelter, they're going to have to do it themselves. If they're going to have clothing, they're going to have to sew a loincloth together themselves. That's the orphan mentality. And, and, and that can look like a lot of different things for us today. Um, it can look like um, perfectionism can look like needing to control every single detail to ensure that what I do doesn't fail. I have to protect my, my integrity, my honor. This has to work. That can look like relationships, needing to control every component of a relationship because um, I, don't want to put, I don't want to expose myself to hurt. So it can look like perfectionism there. Uh, it can look like anxiety and worry for the things we can't control tomorrow or next week or next month. It can look like rebelling against authority. Maybe you don't trust them. Maybe you think you know better. It can look like defensiveness over opinions, especially in, in our day and age. We've got strong political views, defensiveness over our opinions. We don't want, we don't want people to know that we're, we're actually, we don't have our act together as much as we thought. So we're going we're gonna to make sure everyone knows that we aren't, we're good. Our opinions are solid. And for, for me, what, I mean, all of these feel like me. Um, but one of them that, that I think uh, reveals an orphan mentality is prayerlessness or slowness to pray. You know, why, why pray? I, I, my, my first impulse, I'm just going to go take care of this. There's this belief that I'm, I can do what only God can do. So 
all that to say, I'm just giving a, a few examples. Um, oh, here's one. Um, in some ways, in some ways, orphan mentality can actually look a little bit like the American dream of, of des- the desperate pursuit for upward mobility and comfort at all costs. And that, that's not to say hard work isn't good. Hard work is good. But what's driving the hard work a lot of times is a fear that, that God isn't going to give us what we need. And so, however you say it, however it comes out, there it is. It's in us. It was in Adam and Eve. It is this fear or suspicion that God won't come through. So, one of those questions to ponder are, are there ways you act like an orphan who must take things into their own hands? Friends, it's in us. It's in us. But, so we're going to leave chapter 3 for now. I think it's important to leave chapter 3 and come back to it. Um, because we can read chapter 3, the spiritually late dis, uh, November, right? But we can read it like it's an island disconnected from chapters 1 and 2. But chapters 1 and 2 actually are painting a portrait of God for us, and we don't want to miss what that portrait is, because it's the same God in chapter 3. Um, and so we're going to do a 30,000-foot flyby over Genesis 1 and 2. And it's very important you keep your Bibles open now, because um, we're just going to pick up things here and there. Um, one observation of chapter 1 of Genesis, that the page number 1, is that it, actually there's, there's no conflict happening. Most religions, when they tell about their origin stories, there's like a, a battle between the gods. Genesis 1 presents no conflict. There's just one actor, and it's the creator God, and he, and he creates everything. And, and so because there's one actor, I think at least one of the main points behind Genesis 1 is not just to say, how did the world come into being? I think that's important, but I think it's wanting to tell us about the creator. So, so how does God creating in Genesis 1, what does that tell us about him? Well, you guys know the refrain, every time God makes something, he looks at it, and what does he say? It's good. It's, it's beautiful, yes. It's useful, yes. It's in harmony with the rest of creation, yes. But more than that, it's Good. Can you think of a better word than good? It's just a good word. Good. Um, I'm getting lost in it now. Um, but whatever, whatever God makes, it, it's, it's good. And more than that, it, it just does what it's told. The, 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 he puts the sun and the moon, these massive forces, into, into being, into orbit, and they just do what they're told. I guess we're put into orbit, right? Um, but, but everything in creation just does what it's told. The fish, they, they just, they, they take over the ocean, they swarm and they multiply and the birds do the same and, and, and everything goes about as it's told. So what does that tell us about God? Man, it's like everything wants to joyfully submit to its good creator. There's no conflict. Everything's great because its creator is great and everything he makes is good. <laughs> but more than good, I think God is generously good. He's there's an adjective in front of good, generously good, or is that an adverb? The generosity of God, look at verse 26 of chapter 1. Here's what happens. God looks at all that he made, and then he he creates Adam and Eve in his own likeness, and he basically gives the earth that he created over to them. He gives them the command. He says, hey, I want you to rule over this earth that I created. It's awesome. I want you to govern it. 
I want you to cultivate. I want you to make new things. Come up with inventions. I want you to multiply and flourish. I'm giving this earth to you. Isn't That's an, a, a remarkable statement that God wants to give his good creation to his favorite creation, humans. God is surprisingly generous. And while chapter one paints a portrait of God on a cosmic scale, like the whole cosmos, chapter two, so now we're flipping over to chapter two, it kind of zooms in a little bit and it almost like adds the, paint, uh, the, the colors to our portrait of God, the, the shading. We're going to see God working on a more intimate scale. Now he's not making the cosmos, he's planting a garden. So what do we read about this garden? Um, well, let's see, I'm, I'm losing my spot. This garden is overflowing with provision. There's trees and vegetation, and, and they don't require any work to, to grow. There's a mist that, that is so thick of water just rising up out of the ground that it's watering the, plant, the, 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 the garden. It just produces food of its own, and Adam gets to, he's given the garden, so here's kind of how I think Genesis 2 says it. I'm, I'm not sure the exact verse, but the sequence of events is this. God makes Adam from the ground. Then he comes over and plants a garden, the Garden of Eden, and then he t- comes back for Adam and puts Adam in the garden. It's a gift. This, this gift of a garden that's overflowing with abundance and provision. Rivers are flowing out of it. Mist is coming up from it. This place is awesome, and he gives it to Adam. And he says, Adam, I want you to, to work it, and keep it, protect it. And so God's generosity is incredible. And the Lord's benevolence toward Adam wasn't done. He looked at Adam in the garden, doing his business, uh, naming all the animals, and he said, this isn't good. He's alone. I made him for community because he's like me. And so he gives Adam Eve from his own body and brings Eve to Adam. And in that moment, he gives us the beautiful gift of marriage, or more generally speaking, human community. God is, is very, very good. Chapters 1 and 2 testify that, that God is unimaginably more good, well, than you can imagine, that's redundant, but God is unimaginably good. And it tells us that humans, like you and me, we hold a, a precious place in his heart. He, he delights in humans, and whatever he gives to them, he gives it abundantly. This is the picture of God in Genesis 1 and 2. But friends, we are Adam and Eve's kin. We descend from them. And so wrong thoughts about God do tend to work their way into our hearts, that orphan mentality. If we're not careful, we can start to read Genesis 3 with a faulty view of God. We can read Genesis 1 and 2 and say, oh, good creator, got it. Then we flip the page to Genesis 3 and all of a sudden we're suspect of God, just like Eve. God must be vengeful now. He, he must be vindictive, angry. Maybe he's just done and ready to start over. Or at least he doesn't want to be with me. Maybe he's holding something back from me, something good. And I think when the waves of life toss to and fro around us and hit us, um, we also tend to believe the serpent's sinister lie that God is not as good as we thought he should be as, or as good as he says he is. Maybe he's not there and, and that we're alone. We, friends, can read the Bible from an orphan mentality. But church, while many things did change in Genesis 3, God most assuredly did not. God is still good 
in Genesis chapter 3, even as humanity was diving itself deeper and deeper into sin, God was still good, promising hope. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to go back to Genesis 3 now. And we're going to zoom into verses 14 through 19. And I'm not going to read them again, but I'm going to just point out a few things. Broadly speaking, Genesis 14 through 19 uh, has some bad stuff in it, right? There's bad news there. Uh, There's some curses, there's some consequences, but it's not all bad. Remember, if we remember who God is in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we might read it a little differently. Yes, Eve was going to have pain in childbirth now, but you know what? She's still going to have children. It didn't have to be that way. And, and, you know, having children is a great joy from all the women I've talked to, and, and it would be great to have no pain, but, but the fact that we can still have children is an incredible blessing. And, and what about Adam? Well, now, working the soil is going to be hard. There's going to be blisters. It's going to be painful. There's going to be seasons where it's a famine. But you know what? The earth is still going to provide food. It didn't have to be that way either. God could have just restarted. We're also told that we're going to be uh, at war, enmity with the serpent. But at least we're not guaranteed to just keel over dead. We're going to be fighting with him. There, there, there's, there's at least something of a, of a war. But the greatest hope is actually in verse 15. God gives us a promise. Well, actually, he gives the serpent a promise, but it's for us. God says this, I I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and the woman's offspring. And he, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this promise, this good promise, It's a person. It's a descendant. Someone who will undo all of the evil that the serpent's deception unleashed on the world. So so let this promise serve as a corrective to you this morning, to any doubts you may have of God and his goodness. At the moment sin raged in an attempt to destroy all of creation, God was still good. He still promised a savior. He was still generous. He was promising good despite our evil. And, and he's the same God today. And so I, I really, I've, I've used the word a lot, and hopefully that's just so, not to make me sound redundant, but for you to remember that the truest portrait of God is a portrait that reveals he is fundamentally good, totally and always good. Right? God is good all the time, all the time God is good. The church has made that a refrain. It's because it's true. And, and it's not just a side doctrine. It, it is a foundational truth upon which our entire gospel rests. If God is not good, the gospel is not good news. We must fight to believe in the goodness of God in, in culture, but also in, uh, in our own hearts. We must fight, church, to believe the goodness of God. He is and has never ceased to be good. So rest in that. Find peace in that truth. Against all likelihood, God was still for his people in Genesis 3, and he is still for his people today. Um, And he was determined to send a descendant who would one day, and I heard this is the cool thing to do since Pastor Jeff made a shirt. I made a shirt. God was determined one day to send us a descendant who would reverse the curse. You You guys know Uno? This is an Uno card. Uno colors, okay. Anyway, you don't have to clap for it. It's just fun. (laughs) 
you can clap for it. I mean, anyway. Um, joking aside, uh, a visual is kind of helpful. Uh, God, from the beginning, planned to reverse all of this evil that we've really been thinking about this morning. And we're going to see that for the next four weeks. God was dead set on retur- reversing the curse because we could not do it. So, we, we still have one more section, the bigger section, 4 through 11, but we're going to fly by it even faster. But chapters 4 through 11, uh, we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit. After this descendant, this person was promised who was going to reverse the curse, uh, naturally, the, the reader wanted to know, who is it? Who's the guy going to be? Uh, when is he going to come? You and I, we have the benefit of knowing how good, uh, we know the answer, our precious Savior, Jesus But these first people who read did not. And they eagerly longed for this promised descendant. And and they, so in order to to keep track of when this descendant was going to come, they kept meticulous records called genealogies and uh, to record the offspring of Eve. Because one day there was going to be a serpent crushing offspring. And and, and so everyone wanted to know who's this going to be. So you might think genealogies, this list of so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so, you might think, eh, it's, you, know, you might not say boring because it would sound irreverent, um, but maybe you'd think that. Um, but after we, I certainly used to, but after we read chapter 3, verse 15, that God promised an offspring who was going to crush the serpent, boy, genealogies become incredibly, incredibly important. It is a search for a savior. Um, and, and so I think every time we see a genealogy in Scripture, we're, we're, we're supposed to be asking, oh, is this the guy? The author hasn't forgotten about that promise. They're still looking for it. Is this next guy going to be the guy? So, so let me illustrate. You know, chapter 4, we, we encounter the first two offspring of Eve, Cain and Abel. And, and so naturally the reader's asking, is this the offspring? <laughs> So Abel seems to have a promising thing going. God, God uh, revered his, and, and uh, accepted his offering, and he didn't accept Cain's. Um, but soon, Abel was killed by his brother. So evidently, sadly, Abel wasn't the guy. He didn't crush the serpent. And, and Cain, obviously, was not the guy either. He, actually, he was the second person or second thing in the Bible cursed, the other one being the serpent. I guess the ground too, but the second actor cursed which actually makes Cain seem like he's more in league with, with the serpent. He is the serpent's offspring, and more so than he is the e, uh, Eve's offspring. So anyway, that's pretty discouraging. There were two, one's dead, one's the offspring of the serpent in, in a weird way. So now what? Things just get worse and worse. You meet a guy named Lamech who's glorifying himself and thinks he's awesome and, and he, he thinks it's cool that he can kill anyone who opposes him and he's going to take two wives just like Eve took the fruit. And, and, and things seem hopeless. But then at the end of chapter 4, you get another offspring. Seth. Maybe Seth is the guy who's going to crush the serpent. So you flip to chapter 5 and you find the genealogy and you start to go after it. And it's like, oh, soon you encounter a unique feature. Genesis 5 has an interesting phrase in its genealogy that we don't think is interesting because it's our reality. At the end of every genealogy, there's the father, he was this old when he had this son, he lived this many years, and then he died. That's not in every genealogy. Here's what Moses is saying. At the end of every generation, they're not the guy. <laughs> they died. Seth died. Seth's son died. 
His son died. There is Enoch who didn't die, which is weird. We're not going to tackle it tonight or this morning, um, but we totally should, should talk about it in Sunday school. Uh, Enoch walked with God and, and was taken up. But everyone else, they died. They weren't the guy. But at the end of chapter 5, you meet a guy who seems promising, whose name is Noah, whose name means rest, and, and the promise is, hey, maybe, maybe this is the one who will give us rest from the painful labor of our hands. That was the curse, right? The ground is cursed. You'll have painful toil with your hands. But maybe Noah's the guy who will give us rest from that. Maybe he's the guy who will reverse, literally, the curse of the land. And so you think, oh, well, God does seem to favor Noah. The world's getting worse. There's violence, wickedness. God's about to destroy it, but he isn't going to destroy Noah. He's going to keep Noah and, and save him on the boat with his family, with two of every animal. And when the floodwaters recede, there's almost like a new creation forming. The, 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 the dry land appears. There's the animals and the birds again. And then Noah even plants a vineyard, like a garden. And so it's like, man, this is the guy. Chapter 12 comes along. Uh, Noah's getting drunk on the wine from his vineyard, and he exposes his nakedness. We could say more. Long story short, he's not the guy. <laughs> He's just not the guy. And, and, and so, well, what do we do next? Well, what about his son? Shem. Shem seems promising. He covered his father's nakedness. He, he honored his father. Maybe he's the guy. And so it begins again. Another genealogy. We see Shem's genealogy. We're still searching for the guy. And eventually we'll get to this awesome guy named Abram, who I'm not allowed to talk about too much because Rob and Mike are t- tackling it next week. Um, but as we arrive at the end of chapter 11, it's worth reflecting on each of the guys that was not, the guys that weren't. All of them failed, in many respects, tragically. Um, some of them we hear more about than others, but think about it. Adam sinned. Noah sinned. We're going to see Abraham sin with the sister Fibs. Isaac and Jacob do the same thing. They sin. Um, their descendants, the, the people of Judah, will sin. Moses sinned. David looked promising. He sinned tragically. And so each of Eve's offspring, they almost relive their own Genesis 3. They, they see something, they want it, and they take it, and they stop believing that God would have given them something good. And yet, friends, based on what we know about God, what never happened? God never repealed his promise. He didn't say, you know what, I'm done. These guys have just failed over and over again. No, his promise stays the same. His goodness stays the same. There is still a serpent crusher coming from all of these sinful people. So praise God, church, that his promise doesn't depend on our faithfulness, but on his. He and his promises, they're good. And he is intent, he is determined to love us steadfastly and to bring about what he promises. He is dead set on reversing the curse. And so, in a way, each of these genealogies are an incredible expression of faith. The authors are, are saying, we still believe God is going to send the guy, and we're looking for him, someone to reverse the curse. And, and, and so, it should be un, unsurprising, these genealogies aren't just in the book of Genesis. We talked about it a little bit in, in Sunday school. They're all throughout Scripture. And, and we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, to find one on the first pages of our New Testament. The first page, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew starts off the New Testament with what? With what? A genealogy. Why? Because God said one day he was going to send a serpent crusher, and God doesn't lie. And Matthew, he saw it happen. 
And so he's telling about it. He's connecting it back to Abraham. God is good. Moses longed to see it, and we know and celebrate the person of Jesus. We know what God did, and we know that he sent a descendant from the line of Adam, from the line of Abraham, from the line of Judah, all of these sinners to reverse the curse. King Jesus began his work by coming as a, as a lowly infant. He, he dealt a fatal blow to, to the serpent uh, by, by his death and his resurrection, and he will return, friends, to, to deal the final blow and forever crush the serpent. So, we'll just make a couple concluding remarks. Uh, here's, my, I guess, my final questions. Uh, there may be a reiteration of something we've already mentioned. But these are, these are two questions. Number one, what is it that you're believing about God in this season? And that's like a really nebulous question. You know, it's like, well, how do I know what I believe about God? So the second question is for you. <laughs> how, how do you relate to God when problems come your way, uh, unexpected interruptions happen upon you? How do you interact with God? Do you hide? <laughs> I mean, like Adam and Eve, I mean, that's kind of what we all do. Do we draw back from God, hide behind people or behind trees? Is it a little uncomfortable? Or in our moments of need, do we relate to God by, by coming to him? Because I think the way we relate to God in, in, throughout our lives as life hits us, that actually reveals what we believe about God. How we, how we come to him or don't come to him reveals what we're believing about him. So, so just tease that out this week, prayerfully. What is it you're believing about him? And, and my hope, church, on this first day of Advent is that the spirit of Jesus, the promised serpent crusher, would move in your hearts and move in my heart and enlarge your faith in him as he truly is. That is, he's good. God is good. He is a God who is for you. He is a father who will never cast out those who come to him. He's a father who Jesus says will provide for you. And why should you believe what I'm saying about God? Why should you believe he's good, he's a father, he'll provide for you? Because he kept his promise. What, what we've been talking about this whole morning. God said he'd send a serpent crusher and he did. So you can believe everything else about him. He kept his word. God sent the promised descendant of Eve, a man, who was also God. Um, so listen, listen to Hebrews. Hebrews just gives us a, a glimpse of, of Jesus' serpent-crushing victory here. Um, do we have that one projected? This is Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Um, Since therefore the children of man, the offspring of Abraham, um, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself also partook of flesh and blood, the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death to crush him, that is, the devil. And he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely, it's not the angels Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For because Jesus himself was, uh, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
So finally, in closing, would you, would you join me in, in humbly asking um, the Spirit of God to soften your hearts? God, would, would you soften our hearts that, that we might live with a right portrait of you and your goodness? Would you soften our hearts, God, that we might cast off that orphan mentality that we're all prone to? And God, when we stray, we will stray, we will sin. May your spirit remind us that you're good and you welcome back with wide open arms all who repent and turn to him in faith. Church, exhort one another to this end. We are quick to forget the goodness of God. Exhort one another to this end, this December, that together we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May the fulfilled promise of the serpent crusher Jesus from the very beginning, might it convince you of God's unchanging goodness towards you. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, if we're honest, we see ourselves in, in Genesis 3. We confess our forgetfulness. We confess our, our fear of drawing near to you. Father, remind us of your goodness. Some of us, we need to be convinced of it. Convince us that you are unimaginably good. And God, would your goodness, the goodness that is on Genesis, uh, on page one of Genesis one, and it's on Revelation 22, would your goodness, would it draw us out to you? God, we don't want to come to you. Adam and Eve didn't want to come to you. Would your goodness draw us to you? If we've got sin, would we bring it to you? Would we come? You're good, and you will turn away no one who comes to you in faith and repentance. We love you. Thank you for your promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. If you would like more information about Sawyer Highlands Church and Converge Community Church and the service times for both campuses, please visit our website at www.sawyerhighlands.org. Until next time, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.